Let us now hear our second scripture for this day. This reading comes from the prophet Jonah, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. And all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. They may turn their face, their, they may turn from their fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how the people turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that he said that he would bring upon them and did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My first remembered encounter with the Jonah story was as part of the whale. Literally. I was in the third or fourth grade, and the children of the church were putting on the musical, Oh Jonah. Being one of the younger ones at that time, my friends and I all made up the chorus, who, just at the right moment, formed into an awkward and oblong shape on the Fellowship Hall stage, resembling the whale, and gobbled up our friend Jenny, who was Jonah. If I had a guess, I'd say that the whale is the image of this, in this story that we most remember. If ever in your life you've been to Sunday school or attended a vacation Bible school or even watched an episode or two of Veggie Tales while babysitting, you've probably seen or heard some variants of the story of Jonah and the whale. For those of you who don't know, here are the high points. God told Jonah to go to the Ninevites and to tell them they were wicked and would be destroyed. Jonah said, no thank you. And he fled to the nearest boat headed to Tarshish, about as far as he could go from his current place in Joppa. Not at all pleased by this, God caused unrest on the sea. The crew of the boat began to fret, and after figuring out that Jonah was the cause, they threw him overboard. At his insistence, 
where he was conveniently swallowed up by a passing whale. In a 180-degree turn to piety and ostensibly hanging out somewhere next to the spleen, Jonah prayed for three days and was finally thrown up. <laughs> Side note, one commentator imagines Jonah at this, at this point partially digested and said this was why the Ninevites were so quick to turn from their ways. <laughs> I would be too. Jonah got a second chance and proceeded just as we heard this morning. In the next and final chapter, the prophet is so ticked off by God's mercy and change of heart that God and Jonah go several rounds about why Jonah just won't grow up. It turns out that he might be the most successful prophet in history, but he just hated those Ninevites so much, and he couldn't stand it that God did not. The whole thing, whale and all, it is outrageous. It's hard to believe it's true, and it's not. No matter what a theme park may tell us, it is a story. It's satire, delivered by the 4th century equivalent of Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Most of the details of when and where and who are historically inaccurate, and the details that are given are grandiose to the point of ridiculous. Jonah with a lamp lit in the belly of the whale, sheep in mourner's clothing, a city that for a time for that time was mythologically proportioned a 3 days walk across a king who is dead last to hear the news of some prophet walking in the streets and proclaiming destruction in his kingdom but like any good satire the point is to expose truth and the truth here is the ever present and scandalous grace of God. Jonah survives the whale. The Ninevites are spared God's wrath. God is good all the time. I say that the grace of God is scandalous in this story because it meets all of the wrong people in all of the right places or all of the right people in all of the wrong places. It's scandalous because it's not predictable and it doesn't play by the rules that Jonah sets. Who knows, wonders a foreigner, the king of the great Assyrian city of Nineveh. Assyria being the conquerors of the northern kingdom of Israel, that is, enemies of the people God claims as God's own, from whom Jonah comes. Who knows, says this king, God may relent and change God's mind. Friends, I am done with the whale. The king of Nineveh is now who I think of every time I hear about Jonah. What a question. One that we're not liable to ask too often because it leaves open any kind of possibility that we cannot control. Who knows? There is no more perfect and honest and vulnerable and frightening and hopeful question 
for a leader to ask. Realizing that the culture of violence and wickedness he oversaw was leading to their ruin, the king did something totally unexpected. Instead of doubling down, instead of slinging counter accusations or laughing it off, he threw himself and his people at the mercy of the God of the Hebrews. God, our creator, whom he did not yet even really know. That's the even more ridiculous thing. This is the God of those who are supposed to be his enemies. And still, who knows? It sparks our imagination, I think. It's a question we might all be asking ourselves if we have any skin in the game of how God works or can work among us. Leaders and lay people, occasional visitors and new members, staunch skeptics and defenders of the faith. This question feels like it could be the inlet to spectacular possibilities of realizing God's grace and God's action. So why not open ourselves to this task? Just look to Nineveh, or maybe a little bit closer to home. Sarah Miles served as the director of ministry at the St. Gregory of Nisa Episcopal Church in San Francisco. She's also founder and director of the Food Pantry, which operates out of the church. She writes and speaks passionately about Jesus and the church, but ministry has not always been her vocation nor her avocation. She came to it later in life than many others, at almost 50 years old. In fact, she was raised about as far outside of the church as she could be, as far as Tarshish was from Joppa. It's a familiar story. Her parents, both children of missionaries, denounced the church of their upbringing early on in life and settled into a comfortable disbelief in, quote, the whole illogical concept of God. Sarah identified as an atheist for much of her life until one day, at a time when she describes her life as breaking apart, she wandered into St. Gregory and had her first taste of communion. That was a beginning for her, what she describes as her conversion. There was something in the wine and the bread, in eating it and sharing it and tasting and touching it. It turned her life upside down and it led her to wonder what else God might be capable of. Soon, that table where on Sundays church members would gather to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. On that same table during the week, Sarah and many other volunteers would lay out fresh vegetables, breads, and grains for neighbors to come and find healthy food to feed their families. The food pantry became a vibrant ministry of that congregation, bringing them into connection with their neighbors in ways they had not experienced so intimately. Who knows? Who knows where God's grace will meet the most unexpected of people? If we are to make our way past the odd details and into the meat of the story of Jonah, then these are the kinds of questions that we're asking. 
Imagine the life of a church who sets aside these preconceived notions and rigid agendas about what ministry is supposed to look like and lifts a collective heart to say to God, who knows? Trusting that it is God and only God who actually does. And I think that question itself comes with a secondary part. And that is even harder. Who knows? Let's try and see. It comes with experimentation. Now, we're comfortable with this in the classroom and even in the kitchen, possibly in our gardens, but less so when it comes to the part of our lives that we cling to in order to feel stable. The easy predictability of routine is a comfort. We know what to expect and there is something reassuring. But experimentation leaves us open and vulnerable. Because what if it doesn't work? Or what if it does? Are we prepared for the change that that might entail? Well, what happened after the king tried something different? The, Ninevite, the Ninevites got another chance at life. To taste again, to eat and to drink, to lay down their weapons, and to try to live in a different way. And Jonah, on the other hand, well, he got mad. His anger led him to rage before God, demanding to know why God had sent him on this journey in the first place. The, conversion, uh, the conversation that ensued between the prophet and God as Jonah set up camp to sulk just outside of the city, waiting to see what would become of it, this conversation, I think, gives us a picture of what might happen when we aren't willing to ask the questions. It ends with God's reproach of Jonah. Not for his anger, no, but for his short-sightedness. For caring more about that which was immediate to his own needs, rather than the entire community that lie before him. What Jonah expected of God when he showed up in Nineveh was that God would follow the patterns that Jonah determined to be right. But God does not do that. Instead, God acts with justice and with mercy. He shifts the patterns of setting the ability for Jonah or for any of us to pin God down to just what we want her to be. That is the risk when we open ourselves to experiment that God will do something we are not prepared for. We make ourselves vulnerable to where God might be taking hold that we could not have known or imagined. We might see that one for whom we wish, the one whom we were sure was enemy, in fact might be a lifeline to the, the divine. We are reproached to consider where our loyalties lie, with tradition or with God's spirit. The other word in this space that we use instead of experimentation is imagination. And the promise each and every leader, including myself, of this church make when they are called to serve is to do so with a share of energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. 
We don't ask everyone to make this, problem, uh, this promise, but imagine if we did. It takes each of us, in fact, to ask these questions of who knows, the imagination to wonder, the energy to follow up, the intelligence to discern, and the love to see this community as a whole and in part as worthy of whatever the Spirit has in store. This seems to me to be the jobs, job of both leaders and the people. It's a risk. But I think there's a reward when it comes to opening ourselves up to what God is capable of doing. How God can change the nature of our community and the very contours of our hearts. What happens when we ask these questions? We see that God is working about and through all of it. Through people we do not expect, through events we cannot plan, for things we cannot control. God is working through all of it and continues to do so. So why not test the bounds of what we know in this place? Or who knows where God is leading us next? Amen.